This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. In the past few episodes, we have spent a lot of time discussing the future, the future of unions, the future of the planet, the future of propaganda, the future of democracy, and so on. But how can we even begin to conceptualize the idea of future? So to get into the future, I think you need to uh, get a little bit philosophical and think about time, because you know the future is bringing us, inviting us to engage with how we think about time and our presence in time and the flow of time. But I think the other piece that's important is to also think about the important ways that in addition to being kind of a natural fact, the future is a really important cultural fact. My guest today is Noah Sobe, Senior Project Officer for Education Research and Foresight at UNESCO. Later this week at the UN General Assembly in New York, he will be launching a project entitled Futures of Education, Learning to Become. This new project aims to generate global engagement and debate on learning and knowledge in relation to the multiple possible futures of humanity and of the planet. In our conversation, we interrogate the very meaning of the future and what this might mean for education. Learning has been at the center of UNESCO's efforts in education from the beginning. And let me mention three things that I think are are core that feed into us thinking of learning to become as the title or subtitle uh, of the report and the project. Noah Sobe, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thanks, Will. It's great to be here. I look at the news today, I look at social media, and the idea of future comes up over and over and over again, whether it's the future of work or the future of the planet or the future of sustainability. It's, it just seems to be this narrative that is very present today. Why are we talking about future so much today? Yeah, I think uh, I agree, Will. The future, future is everywhere. Uh, I think you know, there's a whole set of people who think that uh, right now the future is a more reliable guide uh, for what we should do in the present uh, than the past is. And so given the, the challenges that we seem to feel with in increasing severity, um, I think it's quite reasonable that we're increasingly thinking about the future. I think, though, that uh, unfortunately, oftentimes it's done rather weakly, and it's all too easy just to take the term future and throw it on your conference presentation or throw it on the title of your conference. You know, after all, in education, pretty much everything we do has a kind of now then, you know, right. kind it's of <laughs> relationship built into it. It's, yeah, you know, yeah. thinking about what has happened, what is happening, and what might happen, right? right. So, uh, and what a, should happen. Yes, exactly. And so a, a future orientation is, is, is natural in education. Mm. Um, but I think that in many instances, uh, it's unfortunately done a little <coughs> bit weakly. Um, mm -hmm. So to get into the future, I think you need to uh, get a little bit philosophical and think about time. Because you know the future is bringing us, inviting us to engage with how we think about time and our presence in time and the flow of time. And one of the will one of the one of the quotes I like most is from uh, Elizabeth Gross, who uh, maintains that there is one and only one time, but there are numerous times. And what does that mean to you? It means that uh, everything has its own distinct duration. 
right? There, there is a, a time of this wooden table, a time of this pencil. A time uh, of my life. A time of life, a, a time of, of an event. Um, uh, but that alongside each of these individual times, there is a kind of global or generic whole time that everything is woven and braided into. And, and I think that's what lets us think in terms of earlier, now, later, um, and that's what that, that idea of a kind of overarching collective time is what lets us help of, lets us think about things past, present, and future. You know, lets us think about, you know, maybe a kind of geological cosmic time that understands the existence of the planet and the universe right. before human beings, and possibly also to envision uh, a geological cosmic time that will exist after right. Um, right. human beings as we as we know them. Right. As it doesn't, are it them. doesn't see humans as exceptional in any way. Yeah, I mean, an argument about time as a natural fact, you right. know, sees it, it is is a visioning of human beings in location to that flow of a kind of overarching global time within which there are multiple times would be Gross's argument. But I think the other piece that's important is to also think about the important ways that in addition to being a kind of a natural fact, the future is a really important cultural fact. Right? And what would that mean? Well, there I'm, I'm, I'm drawing on an idea that's, that's really nicely articulated by, by Arjun Apadurai. Um, and that's a reference to the future that kind of lives in us and through us. It's the future that's shot through with affect and aspirations, you know, uh, and imagination. So, you know, anthropologically, you know, this is the, the sense of what is to come, feared, what is mm -hmm. hoped um, for uh, what might come. And of course, like how we forecast that future and how we place ourselves in it um, has huge consequence um, for the world. Um, you know, the scenarios we envision, um, you know, are not just descriptive of the world, but actually world-making Right, activities. it's becoming in a sense. Yeah, and so, yeah. I mean, and Apodora, he does talk about um, in his book how, he has a quote that I love, it's, it's, histories make geographies. And the idea is that, you know, it's, yes, it is about future making, but it's very much about it has been made from the past as well, right? Mm -hmm. There is that connection to, you know, the, the social fabrics of the world or mm -hmm. of particular cultures that endure over time. Mm -hmm. I think a good example of that, Will, is, you know, the modernist social planning and policy that develops after World War II that mm -hmm. we're still very much a part of, you know, that, you know, really pioneered some new ways of doing futuring work, right? Such of, as? Well, sort of, of treating the future as an engineering project. You know, the more that this was, I think, been the feeling for a long time, and it's still with us in some powerful ways. The more that the future can be rendered visible, the more it can be rendered governable, right? And we can think about all sorts of organizations, institutions um, that operate on that on that kind of you know, governance of the future uh, mode. But what would that look like in practice today, then, or even in the post World War II period, like earlier on? Uh, I mean, it, it's the Rand Corporation, uh, it's the World Bank, right. it's actually modes that are also adopted by UNESCO. Right. Um, I mean, it's a planning model. Right. So um, would and so would this look like something like we are focused on increasing GDP per capita over time? Exactly. And then that then makes us plan particular government policies exactly. in a particular way. Yeah, and I think what I, I would. What Apodora helps me think about is seeing that mode of planning as um, 
you know, in interaction with the future as a cultural fact, as a way of, of, of projecting right. it forward. And of course, it's also important that even as, you know, there are some movements to, still are many, to kind of control the future um, in, a, in a quest for certainty, um, we have also developed some pretty sophisticated techniques for managing the uncertainty of the future, right? Um, and you can think about risk analysis, risk management, risk futures. You can even think about the practice of future proofing, right? Yeah. Which, which is an acknowledgement that you know there is a deep complexity, uh, uncertainty. In fact, you know maybe even a fundamental unpredictability to the future. But within that, we can still plan for it. Right. Um, We're still able to make things not obsolete. My right. product that I sell. You know, the iPhone is not going to go obsolete in the future so long as Apple is is planning and doing risk assessments on how to sell more iPhones. Right. Right. So obviously then this notion of time and these notions of time that exist have serious consequences. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, you know, one way, so to be clear, I mean, I think that what I've just been describing is actually very good and necessary futures work. And when I said earlier that, you know, sometimes the label future gets added to something that's not doing anything like that. Um, and that's a problem. We do need to do some of this more, um, you know, we could even call it like empirical work where we, we look at uh, trend analysis, um, we consider contingencies and so forth. Right. Um, but alongside that, I think that there's a risk that if we spend too much time in this kind of anticipatory futures world, we diminish our ability to think about what's possible. You know, right. what's possible that grows out of the past, right, and is connected to the present, but diverges from it in right. ways that we struggle to imagine. Right. right, we don't have metrics to capture what is unknown in the future. Exactly. You know, Deleuze talks about the virtualization of potential um, as a way of trying to think. There are a, bunch, there are a lot of different ways of, uh, of trying to get beyond the horizon of the known mm. to think about futures of possibility. And I think that alongside, you know, predicted futures, we do need to, in this deliberate futuring work, we also need to think about possible futures. And so what does that look like? I mean, that, what does it mean? Just creating space for them to happen? Because you can't necessarily predict exactly what those possible futures are going to be like. Sure. So part of it is developing a comfort with moving away from prediction. And part of it is also having the confidence to kind of deliberatively, collectively um, engage in some yeah. of that visioning work um, yeah. that uh, I think is a key part of doing all this future's attention. And, and when you're talking about you know, the, the, what you're focusing on in the future and the unknown possibilities, we're, we're talking like across society, across economies, across polities. Is that right? Like it can be, you know, it's imagining things possibly beyond, I don't know, authoritarianism, beyond democracy, beyond capitalism, beyond just sort of everything that we might right. think is normal and taken yeah. for granted today. I think it's certainly necessary to work within the frame of what we know and at the same time, you know, to use your word will, it's necessary to work beyond, right? To think, all right, what would a world look like where this wasn't present or where something new was present? And that's difficult. It's difficult to imagine the new. 
uh, and the novel, but I think that's the challenge. That's the major challenge that's before us. And I can, I mean, individually, intellectually, I, I get it. I understand um, these unknown possibilities and thinking beyond while also allowing for sort of the predictive work empirically that still has to happen. How do you do it institutionally within large structures like UNESCO where you're currently working? How on earth do you get these large structures that are maybe inherently quite conservative and slow and, you know, I mean, this is what we all know from working in institutions, from universities to international organizations, but even small organizations like Fresh Ed, we sort of create these structures that are very difficult to imagine things beyond. So how are you doing that? I, I mean, I think it takes uh, moments of pause and reflection. Um, and this is maybe a good time to go in and talk a little bit about the Futures of Education project sure. um, that I'm working on with UNESCO that's shortly going to be launched at the UN General Assembly uh, in New York. You know, this is an exercise that UNESCO has done kind of at quarter century intervals. So uh, in the late 1990s, in kind of the, sh the shadow of a, of a, of a post-Cold War world, UNESCO under the leadership of, of Jacques Delors uh, bought, brought together a group of people um, that produced the, uh, in 1996, uh, the Learning the Treasure Within um, report, which I think was a, a really important intervention into uh, discussions about education globally. And then prior to that, uh, in the early 1970s, there was another um, similar kind of uh, visioning intervention in the form of the Fuller report, uh, which was titled Learning to Be. Um, came out in 1973. So essentially what UNESCO is, is doing right now is, is pausing to do that moment of reflection engagement. Uh, and there's some significant differences with uh, what we're doing now and what's been done in the past. Um, but uh, you know, generally it's, it's to say you know, from time to time we do need to you know, take those deliberate dives and deep dives into serious thought. Um, so yeah. while the the 2030 agenda and the SDG goals are where uh, a lot of energy is, is focused globally and should be focused. At the same time, UNESCO and many other organizations and, and our partners are looking beyond the 2030. Uh, and in fact, for this Futures of Education project, we're using the horizon of 2050 and beyond. And I think that's another step that's useful for thinking outside of the constraints of what where we are now and how we see where we are now right. um, to kind of really do some some visioning um, activities that think about the world we might have and the world we might want yeah. uh, in 2050 and beyond. So d why did UNESCO decide to do this now? I mean, I think it really highlights one of the important contributions that UNESCO itself makes um, in the global mm -hmm. uh, educational world, um, and that's an ability to activate conversations and catalyze debates um, and bring people together to mm -hmm. really carefully engage with something. And, you know, uh, we, we're thinking of this very much as a, an extension or a, a new edition of the Delore Report. Um, the commission will have some heads of state, some fantastic global intellectuals, some fantastic teachers from various parts of the world. Uh, the commission will have an amazing set of, you know, thought leaders um, around the globe from a variety of different areas, including academics, teachers, 
uh, people out of different kinds of worlds. So that's the core. The commission's going to produce a report for November 2021 um, on the futures of education. Uh, but this is an important feature where this process is going to be different than previous ones. You know, whereas in the Delors report, the committee went into a closed room and closed the door and the windows, we're throwing everything open this time. What do you mean? We're embedding a whole set of consultations and inputs into it. Uh, and we're also going to be reporting the discussions of the, of the International Commission as they're unfolding. An online space. Well, so, uh, yeah, we're developing a whole set of consultation modalities where uh, we're even playing with some gamification around the futures of education. It's fun, exciting stuff. But the basic idea is that alongside of the International Commission track, there's a second uh, track that uh, is really focused on global engagement. So and even the people listening to this podcast could actually participate in some way in absolutely, this project. Absolutely, in a, in a variety of different ways. And we, we want uh, you know ed people interested in education, educational stakeholders from all parts of the world to be um, engaged in this conversation, in this debate, and help wow. helping to shape it. So the initial phase, we're going to uh, kind of be focused on visioning. And then at some point after September 2020, we're going to be releasing some of the initial uh, recommendations and findings of the International Commission for feedback and further discussion. Um, right. So, And then the commission report will be finalized by November 2021. So UNESCO is a member state organization. So when you say recommendations, are you saying recommendations to member states? It's a great question, Will, uh, and that's actually another area where uh, we're expanding the ambit of, of this report. So the mandate to the International Commission is to provide recommendations at all levels, not just to member states, but even to um, you know, individual teachers, parents, students. You know, you know, how is it that we can think about education um, playing a role in making the futures we want to make? So you are calling this report Learning to Become. That's right. You caught that as subtitle, right? And it seems to be a clear take on the report learning to be. That's right. There, <laughs> there's a definite signaling. So what's the difference? Yeah. So, I mean, you're right that learning has been at the center of UNESCO's efforts in education from the beginning. And let me mention three things that I think are, are core that feed into us thinking of learning to become as the title or subtitle. Uh, of the report and the project. The first is that in thinking of learning as becoming, as a process of becoming, it's very important to not consider it also anything that disqualifies anyone, right? Yes, clearly, you know, at its core, education is about a now and a then. It's about a, a learning something in the now for the future. But, you know, human rights, commitments to the right of the child have, you know, fully enshrined the idea um, appropriately that even the youngest members of humanity possess dignity as persons. Um, and so that even in their capacity as human becomings and all of our capacities as ongoing human learners and ongoing human becomings, you know, we, we enjoy the status of, of persons, right? So engagement in learning doesn't disqualify, right? And in, in some ways, this is simply captured in John Dewey's idea right. of, you know, education is life and not preparation for life, right? So the, the concept of learning to become, I think, is, is echoing some of that. Right. Life is about becoming uh, in mm -hmm. many ways, as mm -hmm. learning is. 
So the second thing is, you know, learning to become is in part nurturing a capacity to imagine. It's about the capability uh, to envision for oneself a fulfilling life. You know, it's about the anticipation of futures and, and how I can envision and then how I can realize. And, and education is in many ways about, you know, uh, providing people with those capabilities, right? Mm -hmm. It's about enhancing, enhancing those capabilities. At the same time, we have to recognize that around the world, there are many people who live in such extreme conditions of poverty or exclusion or violence that the future is either something they can't think about or is such a, a scary thought, right. right, that it's to be avoided. So. Uh, it's a privilege to think about futures in, 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 a, in a lot of ways. Absolutely, absolutely. So, I mean, addressing that, you know, means addressing you know structures of oppression. It means addressing the maldistribution of resources. But within that, I think we also need to set the development and furtherance of the capacity to imagine as a key important educational end. And I would say that's important for sure in resource poor settings but it's also important in research-rich settings, you know, um, where the purposes of life mm -hmm. and the purposes of learning need to be, you know, clearly part of the conversation for learners. Right. And what was the third? So the third is, uh, you know, the question of what we want to become. If you know uh, an Israeli historian, uh, Yuval Noah Harari, um, who's written some interesting books um, on the history of Homo sapiens. The second book is on Homo, is called, titled Homo Deus. Uh, and, and he asks us to take seriously the idea that the next stage of human history isn't just going to feature technological change or, you know, kind of the continued transformation of human cultures and human societies. That, that, that seems obvious. But he thinks that, or he envisions a not too distant future where there is the potential for fundamental transformations in human consciousness uh, and human identity. Um, and you know, we can point to biotechnology, we can point to you know, artificial intelligence, but Harari suggests that really the, the question we need to have front and foremost is, you know, what do we want to become? And those are questions that resonate deeply with UNESCO's vision of humanism as something that's, that's constantly uh, transforming um, in the process. And, emerging, right. and emerging. That question is one of the key ones we're going to address in this process, but it's one that humanity needs to keep addressing because right. clearly we have to become something we have not yet become. Right. So even when the report is finalized, the project is not over. Right. The process doesn't end right. with the final printed document. That's quite human, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but what about, I mean, the other thing that I noticed when I read some of these reports is it's not future that you're talking about. You're talking futures. And that seems a bit different from maybe this, the everyday talking that we've seen in so many different contexts of you know, thinking about the future. Why that, plural? That, I'm really glad you picked up on that, Will, because that's a, that's a key part of this. So uh, it is quite intentionally called the futures of education project. And I think that for too long we have, and in a limited set of places in the world, envisioned one future. Um, and in fact, one of the problems of the contemporary world is the scarring history of imposed futures. So in one sense, to talk about the futures of education is an, an empirical recognition that, that really there will be multiple futures to education, but to the planet. And it's also a recognition that there should be and that people should 
have a play a key role in shaping the future that they want and that those futures are going to look different in different places right. for different people. Right, and future is not going to be distributed evenly globally. Plus, people might envision different futures for themselves right. and their societies. Right, there is inevitably going to be unevenness. I think it's important, though, that we don't vacate the future and consider it this canvas for technological enlightenment. I think we have to consider the future fundamentally as a moral category, and we have to approach the future as a space for democratic decision. Well, Noah Sobe, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed, and best of luck in your futures. Thank you, Will. It's a pleasure. Noah Sobe is a senior project officer for education research and foresight at UNESCO. Today's episode was put together in collaboration with Education International. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please consider rating us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, and Lushik Waba. Fatih Akhtas is our researcher, and Ing Jung Cho is our content developer. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.